words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please. You know, you'd think by this point in my life, I would have learned that well-worn saw, you know, the one that cautions, be careful what you wish for. You see, longtime followers of the good-natured ribbing between our rector and me will note that I often assumed this pulpit only to begin a sermon demurring the fact that Mike has assigned me to try to make sense out of some convoluted biblical passage or obscure religious holiday. Now, for me, there's no preaching at midnight mass on Christmas Eve. I don't get the great vigil, and I certainly don't do Easter Sunday morning. No, no. I get transfiguration. I get low Sunday, the week after Easter, you know, where two or three are gathered, and we call that a crowd. And I tell you, if there were a feast of St. Elmer the Lesser, Mike would have me preach on that one too. So as we gather for one of the church's real principal feasts this morning, the Festival of Pentecost, you'd think I'd actually be elated to preach and temper my heckling of Mike. But not so fast. What have we done? What are the lessons for today? I mean, we have to come to grips with wind blowing through a house, flames bobbing around on top of disciples, and folks talking in gibberish as a spirit hovers over the crowd like some kind of charismatic astronaut or Pentecostal drone. Hmm. As I said, I should have learned to be careful what I wish for. To be sure, the events of this day described in this morning's lesson from the book of Acts are among the most familiar in all of Scripture. Jews from throughout the ancient Near East, including Jesus' disciples, had gathered in Jerusalem for the joyful celebration of the festival of Shavuot, that time when we gather together to offer the first fruits of the harvest up to God. But suddenly, wind rushes through the crowd. Flames appear above their heads, and each began to speak of God's deeds and power, not in their own Aramaic language, but in the different languages of the crowd itself. So stunned were these revelers by this incredible display that they assumed the disciples were drunk. But Peter reminds them that it's only nine in the morning, and not five o'clock somewhere else. And then he quotes from the prophet Joel, who centuries earlier had described God's promise to pour out his spirit on all of God's people. Despite, however, our familiarity with this pivotal event at the dawn of the church, it also has spawned more than a small amount of confusion misunderstanding and misrepresentation. First is the issue of what actually happened on this incredible day more than 2,000 years ago. We also need to come to grips with what was said and as important, what was promised. And finally, we'll need to clarify to whom these astounding gifts were given. These are not only fodder for academic speculation and 
theological reflection. In fact, they cut to the very heart of our relationship with God and God's with us. They speak to mutual expectations and promises. And they begin to define who we are as God's people, the body of Christ, the church. So first, what really happened that caught the attention of the crowd? Neither the wind that roared through it nor the flames it whipped up seem to have given religious scholars much pause over the centuries. Generally, they all agreed that these were natural phenomena, yes, appropriated by God for the occasion, but readily explainable events nevertheless. After all, fierce winds and sandstorms are all too common in the Middle East. And embers from the many fires used to prepare food for this joyous feast could easily have been caught up in the wind and danced around the disciples. Thus, while understanding both wind and fire as part of this special occasion, Christendom has paid relatively little attention to them other than as one more example of God using the ordinary to summon the extraordinary. However, the speaking in tongues described in Acts is a quite different matter. Unlike wind and flames, the remarkable speech of the first Pentecost has captured the imaginations of people for centuries. Interestingly, both the holiness and Pentecostal expressions of Christianity are grounded in this defining experience. They seek to replicate it as part of their regular worship and even use it to define who they believe to be are true Christians. And friends, therein is the problem. You see, the speaking in tongues of which scripture speaks is not the glossolalia of the charismatic movement or these churches that revel in emotional ecstasy. It was not random, nonsensical, unintelligible speech. And it was not a stupor transporting the speaker into a different dimension or into a trance. No, God is far more practical and far more purposeful. As this morning's lesson from Acts reveals, Jesus' followers were simply given the ability to proclaim the gospel to foreigners who spoke a different language than theirs. In a very real sense, there is little distinction between the accessibility to God created by the breadth of languages spoken on that first Pentecost than a contemporary translation of the Bible into Arabic or Chinese or Moru. It's not different than the sermon offered in Spanish, Bosnian or Syrian to recent immigrants to St. Louis. And it's not unlike worship that embraces the tradition of black spirituals, gospel and jazz, music that speaks to your heart and mind, just as the traditional hymns of Wesley and Watts and Luther speak to others. If that was the first source of confusion created by Pentecost, the second source is the challenge to our understanding of it. What actually was said? And for that, we turn to John's Gospel. In it, Jesus states it 
in my name you ask me for anything, I'll do it. Huh. What a sweeping statement. Can you imagine? If you ask for it, I'll do it. And taken at face value, this phrase has been abused by more than a few preachers and undermined even by our own experience. For example, any number of televangelists and biblical hucksters proclaim, for example, a gospel of prosperity, insisting that God wants us to accumulate wealth and encouraging us to pray for it. And by the way, please send in your donation to my television ministry. <laughs> Faith healers raise false hopes, then simply fade away as illness and disability run their course. And even if we don't succumb to these charlatans, we too often find ourselves praying not what God would have as best for us, but simply what we desire at the moment. Make no mistake. I believe Jesus when he said that he will do anything we ask. The question, however, is what is that anything? And there John's gospel is pointed and clear. Through the presence of God's spirit, we will be given truth. A heady thought. But even as Pilate asked as he interrogated Jesus at his trial, we too should ask of John, so what is truth? From John we learn that truth is a God who loves us. God who loves beyond comprehension. From John we learn about a son who gave his life for our redemption. And truth is spirit that will guide us as we grow in our relationship with God. No, dear friends, Jesus didn't promise a spiritual ATM for us. Rather, he promised that he will give us all that we need to live and to flourish in our relationship with God in every circumstance of our lives, at every moment of time. The final challenge of this Pentecost celebration is to explore for whom the gift of the Spirit is given. And again, confusion seems to abound. We noted just moments ago that there are some churches who explicitly describe the gift of the Spirit as the defining characteristic of a Christian. Not so for us. To be sure, each of us receives the gift of God present in Christ in our baptism, and we're welcomed into the fullness of God made possible through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. We remember and celebrate that gift of love and truth. As we commune with one another in Christ in the Eucharist, we'll celebrate in just moments. And importantly, lest we forget it's not about occupying a place in the pew. The gift that we've given sends us from this table to share God's love, God's truth, to a world pained by racism, by bigotry, by hate. You and I are sent into a world where guns too often rule our streets and legislators too often rule women's bodies. And you and I are sent by this spirit, by this spirit of Pentecost, into a world where political narcissism increasingly masquerades as democratic governance. Pentecost 
sends you and me into the world. To be sure, the world of the disciples was different but no less fractured. They, like us, were sent with the very spirit of the living God to speak truth to Rome, to speak truth to power. They were sent to embrace societies marginalized, stigmatized, and ostracized. And they were sent to share the love and grace of God, whose spirit, whose affection is boundless. This morning, we too celebrate the journey we share with them, the journey of faith, the journey of church beyond these walls. And we celebrate the spirit that empowers it, that nourishes it, that sustains it. May that be the truth for which we pray, today and always.